Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. This morning, chapter 4, verse 11. So we are actually continuing our walk through the entire letter of James. And as I've said each week, it is a letter, but it's more than a letter. It's actually a sermon letter. James pastored a church in Jerusalem. They were forced out of their city because of persecution. And so James can't preach in person. And so he does kind of like an ancient equivalent of live stream, maybe. <laughs> and he writes them a sermon, and he, and he extends it out to his church. Who he calls the twelve tribes in the dispersion, or the exile. So he can stay connected to them. So he can continue to point them to Jesus. And God has given this sermon, not just to the earliest church, but to all of his people across the globe, across time, by putting it in a canon of scripture. Now, when you hear the word canon, don't think sort of that thing that that you shoot off. Um, But canon meaning rule or authority. It's like how people talk about the Star Wars canon. Have you heard that phrase before? The Star Wars canon, which is, by the way, the screenplays, apparently, the films, the radio dramas, and the novels. And I learned this from Wikipedia, if you want to know. The canon, it's the authoritative grouping of Star Wars. Now, with Scripture, it's the same. God wanted this ancient sermon from James into his authoritative canon, into his Scripture, into his Word. For us. And I don't know about you, but I've been surprised over the past few months as we've been walking through this how relevant this ancient sermon has been for this cultural moment today. It's really as if James is preaching to us today. I've also been surprised by the soul searching depth of James. Uh, I came to James this summer thinking it was all about action, thinking it was all about obedience, sort of a treatise of how to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. What I wasn't expecting at all, and that is all true, but what I wasn't expecting at all was how much James takes us to the very depths of our hearts. He's a soul doctor, not just a dog trainer. Right? Dog trainers just get dogs to obey. But James is concerned about our motivations. What's going on in the depths? The posture of our heart. The motivations of our heart. Yes, he believes true faith will have fruit. But he has week in and week out taking us to the root system of our faith. This week is not different. He'll point us to big, uh, sort of a huge external issue going on in his church But then we'll dive deep into the internal heart. I'll read the text. We're going to start actually in verse 6, which we read last week, but we're going to read it again. It's kind of on ramp into the text we're studying this morning. So, James chapter 4, starting in verse 6. I encourage you to 
Listen, long as I read. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hand, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded or double-souled. Be wretched and mourn and weep. That's repentance language. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your name? Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer and Holy Spirit. Soften our hearts, open the eyes of our hearts so that we would not just learn new information this morning, but that we would actually see Jesus and worship him, that we would sing about our Savior by the time this is over. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, so a few months ago, my trusty weed whacker bit the dust, uh, sort of heading there for a while, but it finally died on me. And so I headed over to Lowe's for a replacement. And as I was walking around the lawn care section of Lowe's, I discovered something. Basically, everything is battery powered now. If you notice this, it just happened overnight, for me at least. It just happened overnight. Everything is battery powered. It was news for me. It was happy news. And so I drove home with my new battery-powered weed whacker. This thing's awesome. <laughs> it is so, so fun. It's like I'm now a dog without a leash. It's kind of how it feels. <laughs> I can just waltz around my yard without having to be worried about, uh, you know, the outlet or the wire or whatever it is, the cord that I'm carrying around me. And maybe you can relate, but there's nothing more satisfying, can I give an amen, than weed whacking. Is there nothing more satisfying than walking? And before it was a little cumbersome because I was attached to the wall, but now I'm just, I'm like, I have free reign in my backyard. And it is so great. Here's the only problem with that, though. I have to do it every week. Because a weed whacker is, like, super convenient and knocking away what is above the ground, and it's super, like, not good at whacking away what is below the ground. It's pretty terrible at that, actually. And so a little sunlight, a little bit of water, and the weeds are back. Usually stronger than that. Every time I actually get this weed whacker out of the garage, I have the same thought. I'm like, I should put on gloves, and maybe put my ear pods in, and and just get muddy and just do it right. <laughs> and then I always say, nah, and I just start whacking away because it's fun. Well, sadly here, this is a parable of my spirituality. Maybe you saw this coming, but too often I settle for what I could call a weed whacker spirituality. I think something or I do something and then a sort of weed whack <laughs> by making resolutions or by making sure I feel bad or 
sort of by enough self-criticism. I think something bad, I do something bad, and I just kind of hit it at the surface again. I think we probably all can relate to this. We all do this. We settle for this weed-whacker spirituality where we do something wrong and we knock it down on the surface. We hope to do better next time. So most of our Christian life could look like me walking around my backyard, kind of looking, spot-checking for weeds, and then sort of whacking them, but never getting to the roots. No wonder we get frustrated with the same old weeds. No wonder we get frustrated most of the time coming back to even more powerful and harder to knock down weeds. And we ask, where is the real change in our life? The lasting change. The change that sort of lasts forever. It seems like the more we chop away, the thicker the weeds in our life grow. And if we're not careful, we'll just give up. We'll just give up. We'll give up thinking change is even possible. And so what's the solution? Well, the solution that James has for us is to go to the root. Is to go to the root. Listen to the late Jack Miller. He makes a distinction between what he calls branch sins and root sins. I'm just going to quote him. He writes, quote, branch sins are those faults which others most quickly see in us. They are the sins which most obviously get in the way of relationships with others. They are branch sins. However, not because they are little sins, but because branches are more observable than roots. And because branches derive their life and strength from hidden roots. That distinction for me is so helpful. And it's exactly how James wants us to view the sort of observable sins in the church. The early church that James pastored, if we take a look at the text again, had a weed problem, and especially in the area of speech and how they were talking with each other. So in verse 11, James tells them to stop speaking evil against one another. And then later he says to stop judging one another. He's talking to brothers and sisters in the family of God. And this distinction for me is helpful. Because what James is speaking of here, we could call branch sins. Now there are two different words that combine to mean one thing here. The first word is kataleo, which is literally to speak against. And some of your translations may say to speak evil against. To speak against. And the second word is krino, which means to judge or to criticize. And you might hear that Greek word echoing in our word criticize or critic. Now James, I want to say on the front end, is not here encouraging a sort of kind of false kindness that ignores wrongdoing with one another. We know iron sharpens iron, and he's not telling us to blunt our speech in such a way that we'll never sort of speak accountability to one another or to lovingly challenge one another. After all, James's letter is pretty sharp iron. Amen? <laughs> it just is. So that can't be what he's talking about. Jesus is the same with his words. I like how one scholar puts it. Quote, James is not prohibiting proper and necessary, we'll say discernment, accountability, etc. That every Christian should exercise. No, no. James is concerned with jealous, censorious speech by which we condemn others as being wrong in the sight of God. See, when you combine speak against with criticize, 
you get what Eugene Peterson calls bad mouthing one another. Bad mouthing one another. You can see this at work in chapter 4, what we just looked at last week. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? They're fighting. They're not loving each other, they're fighting. Yeah, iron sharpens iron, but they're using their iron to kill. To kill. And so we see it in the early church. All you have to do is spend a few minutes on like Christian Twitter to see it's dead. But if we're honest with ourselves, we don't even have to look out there to see it in action. We can see it clearly in our own hearts, at work, all the time. We can so easily badmouth our Christian brothers and sisters. Sometimes out of bitter zeal or jealousy, which James talks about a little bit before in chapter 4. Sometimes it's to advance our own agenda. Sometimes it's because it makes us feel more secure. In our, maybe our own tribal identity. Sometimes we're people pleasers, and so we have this giant kindness filter on our mouth, but internally there is some vitriol. Amen? There is some vitriol going on. There's like a tornado of it. And if we were somehow given like a verbal open season, it would get ugly, right? It would get ugly. But notice what James does in this passage. It's actually amazing. He goes to the root system. He only spends about three words on the branch sin. In verse 11, do not speak evil against one another. But then he spends this entire passage on the root system, the root sin. Just read on. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Taking us deep. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, the law here can sound very impersonal. I know it can. So, what does James do? He, he gets real personal in verse 12. Take a look. There is only one lawgiver. See, with the law, there's a lawgiver. It's God. He who is able to save and to destroy. Then he says, who are you? To crino, to criticize your neighbor like this. Essentially, what he's saying is, when you badmouth others, you are essentially badmouthing God. Alec Bodier translates speak evil against as defamation or talking down someone. Talking down someone. James is saying if you're talking down someone, that's because at the heart level you're at too high of a perch. The branch sin is our speech. The root sin is an anti-humble posture before God and others. That's why I had us read verses 6 and following to just understand where this is coming from the flow of thought in this letter. The flow of thought, James is just starting, he's just talking about humility, 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 humility. And here he comes with this section about our speech. And he's essentially saying, this is a surface root uh, this is a, a, a branch sin, but the root is something that is not humble. Which explains verse 12. James essentially asks the question, who are you? Who are you? Or who do you think, who actually do you think you are? Is the question. For James, 
Again, the branch sin is our, our sort of verbal self-control, but the root sin is an arrogant posture. Who exactly do you think you are? Who are you? Which means, this is what I want you to hang on to, true change can only happen when we get to that place, that core root system place, our posture. We have to talk about our posture before God and before others. Because James says he wants us to answer this question, who are you accurately with truth? That's what he wants us to do, which is to say, with humility. He wants us to repent, yeah, of our, of our bad-mouthing, but more importantly, he wants us to repent of our false identity of arrogance, this sort of high perch, and live out of our true identity in Christ, which is a, a humble posture. So let's look at both of those together. Uh, this morning. First, our false identity. This is the way not to answer the question, who are you, okay? And this is with spiritual arrogance. So he exposes at the root sort of a, something that poisons and informs and feeds our harmful speech. It's spiritual arrogance. It's a lack of humility. It's a posture, really a stance. Bad-mouthing reveals a stance at the depths. And James talks about this in verses 11 and 12 that we just read. And the first stance is this. We stand against God. We stand against God. Look again at verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. He goes on in verse 12. There's only one law giver and judge, so he makes it personal. So on the one hand, they're sort of standing in their posture against God because simply they're, they're like disobeying his will. That's like number one and kind of the easiest sort of uh, low-hanging fruit as we try to follow what James is saying. They're breaking his law by doing this. So Leviticus, for instance, 1916, which is one of your life verses, I know. I'm uh, just kidding. Leviticus 1916 prohibits slander. It prohibits slander. And then two verses later, you might actually have this as your life verse, uh, it commands neighbor love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus. But James wants them, and these folks had a high view of God's law, this early church. He wants them to know that they're just flat out, flagrantly in disobedience to God's law here. They're slandered in stuff. So that's kind of issue number one. They're disobeying God. They're standing against God. The law is not some arbitrary set of rules. It reflects the heart of God. That's James' point. And so James is saying, bad-mouthing others is, again, almost as if you're bad-mouthing God. You're standing against Him. James goes deeper. He shows them how their bad-mouthing actually reveals a posture that's not just against God, but it's actually above God. Above Him. They're, in a sense, judging God. When they judge others. Because they're standing in his place. And that's verse 12. Who are you to judge your neighbor? There's only one judge. It's God. See, underneath their verbal sins was immense pride. And that's what James wants them to spotlight. A heart posture that was not standing below God, kneeling below God in humility, but above God in a sort of spiritual superiority stance. Bible scholar Alec Modi, he really helped unlock this passage for me, and this is what he says. Defamation is not a breach of truth, because after all, you can speak true things even as you sin against them with your speech. No, no, it's not a breach of truth, but a breach of humility. 
And so James says, on the one hand, don't do it. But then in verse 12, he goes deeper and says, that's not who you really are. He gets to the identity, the real identity in Christ. Now, some of you know, maybe by experience, that college is a time when many folks put on sort of different masks. They try on like a Halloween party or a costume party or a masquerade, different masks. Maybe you had a friend uh, back home who knew who you were beneath the masks that you were trying on in college. And when you came home from school, they sort of called shenanigans. And they're like, that's not who you are. That's just not who you are. They reminded you of your true identity in that moment. Well, that's the posture of Pastor James in this letter. It's a friendly prodding. And he's saying, deep down, this is not who you really are. This is not who you are. The Apostle Paul, he unpacks this even more. He says that you have an old self that is in Adam. And when we lay hold of Jesus with our empty hands of faith, what happens is that now we have a new identity, which is in Christ. The old self, who we are sort of in Adam, is a usurper like our father, Adam, who usurps the throne of God. We stand against Him and we stand above God. We know better than God. We say to ourselves over and over again, God, I'm, like, I know you're saying this, but I, I think I'm wiser than you on this point. Maybe we don't verbalize it, but our actions sometimes show that attitude in our hearts. And that is, James would say, not who you really are, who you really are in Christ. Our old identity was crucified on the cross. James asks, who do you think you are? As a follower of Jesus, as one united to Jesus. It's interesting, almost every commentator on this verse sees James' questioning here in verse 12 as a sort of harsh, bitter questioning, like a put down. Who do you think you are? Kind of thing. But there's one commentator who saw kindness in this question, and I did too. I did too. I see someone whose heart beats for this community of Jesus and wants them wants them to really live out of their true identity he sees them living out of a false self and he wants them to live out of a true self in Jesus and he's saying remember who you are, who do you think you are you have to remember who you are, which brings us to our second point our true identity, James goes to the root system, exposes the root sins, but he doesn't leave us there, of course. He also shows us the new roots, the new planting that God has given us. He points us to our true identity. On first read, it's easy to miss, but others help me see it. Take a look at verse 11. It's a simple word, aldelphoi, which is translated in my Bible, brothers, when used in reference to a gathering, especially a religious gathering, it means brothers and sisters, and so it's a family. It's a family. James is answering the question, who are you, by reminding them of their identity. They're in the family of God. Now, I want to talk about this. Number one, it means that they were reborn. They were reborn into the God's family. So we've been brought into God's family by grace. We were outsiders without home, but now we are brothers and sisters, first of Jesus and then one another. Listen to how James puts it in 
verse 18 of chapter 1. Take a look at this. Of His own will, that's God, He brought us forth, or birthed us, is the word here. There's a rebirth that happened here in verse 18. By what? By the word of truth, which is the gospel, which is the news of what Jesus did and His life on our behalf, His death on our behalf, His resurrection on our behalf, His ascension, His session, how He sits and intercedes for us, all of it, how He's coming back to, to bring and to restore, to renew everything, all of that is in this word of truth. And we are brought forth, it says in this text, we are brought forth, we are born again, we are reborn from above. It seems like James was hanging out with his brother Jesus here. We are born from above, we are born again, where? Into a new family, so that we are now brothers and sisters of one another. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus, he is our older brother now. This is our true identity. And in order for that to happen, we needed to be redeemed by grace into this family. So we are reborn by grace into this family. We are also redeemed by grace into this family. In verse 12, James reminds us that there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to what? Save and destroy. Now, this verse means on the one hand, only God can judge. Therefore, don't go on judging people's, uh, as, as we saw, crinoing people. Criticizing people. Stop going around issuing eternal decrees on people. But there's more to this, I think, because we've been reborn by grace into God's family, because we are brothers and sisters now of Christ and God's family. We know how to interpret these verses through the cross of our older brother Jesus, don't we? These words describe a God who is alone able to save and destroy. But because of Jesus, we are not destroyed. The cross of Jesus is when the judge becomes judged. On our The cross of Jesus is where the destroyer becomes destroyed. On our behalf. So that we would never be destroyed. The cross of Jesus is where judgment and salvation are both 100% on display. Judgment, our sins deserve salvation that we don't deserve. If you trust us in Jesus, this is your root system now, this is your true core identity. You are a co-heir with Jesus. Whatever he stands to inherit Jesus, we, all who are trusting in Jesus, stand to inherit as well. We are co-heirs. We are brothers and sisters. We somehow get in on it. We're like the prodigal son who comes back and is shocked to discover that the inheritance is still for us. We're all, in other words, standing on equal ground together, aren't we? We're all brothers and sisters. And this means a couple things, I think, for you. First, let's put the weed whacker away for good. That's what we should do first. Go to the root. This has been called deep repentance before. 
It's what James wants us to do. So if you're wondering, the construction crews outside my house are still in full force. In fact, they were in my basement on Friday. And this past week, they had to dig deep next to an old tree in our front yard. But they didn't actually dig. This was kind of fun to watch, actually. They power sprayed around into the ground. And then they had this giant vacuum that sucked up the loose earth. Now, why were they power spraying and not digging? Well, they didn't. They wanted to preserve the root system of the tree that they were digging right next to you. And so the spray was, in a way, powerful enough to break up the ground, but not powerful enough to break the roots. The result was that you had this giant chasm of a hole, but then like a sort of network of cables, you saw all of these roots. Kind of an exposure of what is invisible. And that's what James wants us to do with, with our lives. He wants us to sort of get to the root system and to explore, see what we find. And with sin especially, what we do is we don't just stay at the surface of our sins. We don't just say, oh my gosh, I said something harsh to somebody. James would encourage us to say, what is going on down deep? What is fueling that harsh statement? You know, I've heard it said that every sin is in a way an accusation against God. Chew on that. That is worth a lifetime of chewing. That statement alone, that is a great insight. Every sin is in a way an accusation against God, and it accords perfectly with what James is saying here. This sin of speech is actually an accusation against God himself. They're standing above him with pride when they judge. And so that's what we should do too. We should see this as an invitation to go deeper in our repentance. We don't just say, oh Lord, I'm so sorry for speaking poorly about this person or, or for being critical. We say, Lord, I am sorry for that. Will you forgive me? We also say, what is fueling that? What is sort of feeding that? What is in a way nourishing that sin? That patch of weeds. What can I turn from at the deepest level? Is there maybe an idol of the heart down there? Something that I feel like I need desperately in my life that is not the Lord. It can even be a good thing, as we talked last week. We can ask God, you are not blank enough. You are not good enough. You are not wise enough. You are not satisfying enough. Therefore, I think maybe that's why I'm going to this or, or doing this. It can be anything, but just go there. It's an invitation to go there. To, to live in depth. That's what I want you to do. To live in depth. Especially when it comes to the ways we harm each other with our words. The ways we don't love God and love our neighbor. Go to the depth. Go to the root level. Throw the weed back Number two, I would love this text to sort of encourage each of us to allow sort of the sins of others to generate some self-reflection in your own heart. What do I mean? Well, uh, pastor and author Paul Miller, he calls this plank research. Plank research. And he's getting this off of Matthew 7 where Jesus sort of condemns hypocrisy and, and also defines hypocrisy as kind of the tendency to criticize specks in other people's eyes, uh, but kind of not worrying about the plank that's kind of out for everybody to see. And so plank research is the practice of noticing your judgmental spirit. What fires you off when you see sin in other people? What fire, like, what just gets you going? When does a critical spirit start rising? 
When are you tempted to bad mouth? That's, that's what I want this text to do, is I want you to notice that. Just notice that. And then ask, am I guilty of the same thing? Is that maybe why I'm hypersensitive to it? I can't answer that, but you can. You can sort of go there with God. You can do this plank research. And what happens is you start seeing, as it's been said, deepest concern for other people's sin. You start seeing your own sin as maybe like the most kind of scary thing in, in your life. The thing that you're most concerned about. It means we go from being blind to our own sin to being aware. What does that do? It makes us humble. It makes us humble. Because the more aware we become of the depths of our sin, what else will happen? The more aware we become of the full-on grace of God for you in Jesus. Because whatever is revealed in that exploration, you need to know it was crucified on the cross. It's no longer can condemn you. Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because your sin, past, present, and future, was already condemned. That frees you up to go deep. That frees you up to be real. And what happens is that frees you up to be humble. True humility is not something that you can manufacture. True humility happens at the foot of the cross. The foot of the cross, where you see your sin on full display, and yet the full sort of judgment of God, but yet you also see the full salvation of God. Right there, verse 12, on the cross. When you see that, humility happens. And it changes our posture towards other people. It does. It does. We do our plank research. Which means finally, just embrace this true humility as your deepest and most real identity. Every morning I think we could wake up and answer James' question in verse 12. Who are you? Who are you? Like, we could ask that question. And if you're trusting in Jesus, this is how you can answer that question. I am God's family. I'm co-heir with Jesus because he's my older brother. He lived for me. He died for me. His life of obedience has been credited to me so that when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. He regards me as he regards his son Jesus. That's amazing. I look at the cross and I see that all my sins that could condemn me and ought to condemn me do not condemn me because they were condemned by on the, the body of my older brother Jesus. I look at the resurrection of Jesus and I see that his new life is now my new life. I look at the Holy Spirit who's been given to me and therefore I have a new identity. I am living out of that resurrection self. I look at all that and I say to the question, who am I? I say, I am redeemed. I am redeemed. I am rescued. I am reborn. That is who I am. And it's by sheer grace. And because it's by sheer grace, I am humble. I am like the prodigal son buried in the arms of the Father. Have you seen that painting by Rembrandt about the prodigal son? That image shows you what true humility looks like. It's that posture. It's that posture. Being sought after. That's what James says. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Which is, for me, a, like an ancient commentary on the story of the prodigal son. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What happens when you draw near to God like the prodigal son? We draw near with all of our sort of big leaps, with all of our self-justifications. And we start walking towards the dome. And what do we notice in the horizon? We notice the Father, uh, like, sprinkling. 
ready to give us his inheritance. Ready to put it, put it on our bodies so that we can't forget it. As a ring. We draw near to God. What does he do? He draws near to us. That's humility. And I just want to, I just want to, Ask the Lord, well, I was praying to you now, I just want to ask the Lord that that would, that reality, would change the way we talk, would change our speech. That's, that's James's deepest pastoral prayer. I want to make it mine. Let's pray. Lord, would you just humble our hearts before your throne? You are God alone, judge, but also your cross, where the judge became judge. Lord, would that change our speech? Would we? Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.